man, like, it's, it's not a good bit, but, like, we, we were so, so ridiculously busy at the convenience store that I work at, that my mother owns. Um, shameless plug, come to Mule Town Mini Mart if you're ever in Menford, and I'll give you a hot dog. All right, come <laughs> hang out with me. It's good times. But, uh, but not, nah, man, like, we, we were so, so hammered busy on Friday whenever I was working uh, my shift in the morning. Like, we sold so much bread and milk. Like, again, like, I know, like, everyone makes that joke, but, like, you think you know, like, you don't know anything about bread and milk until you work at a convenience store or a grocery store whenever, like, there's going to be two inches or more of snow, right? And one thing that always blows my mind whenever it snows, again, aside from people stocking up on, like, 20 cartons of cigarettes or some stuff because they think they're never going to see the light of day again, right? Like, I'm never going to make it out of my house even though, like, I live 50 feet from the store. I'm never going to make it. But, like, whenever people buy milk and and bread, they never buy cereal, and they never buy lunch meat. Like, think about, like, just think about that for a second. Yeah, they don't buy peanut butter either. Like, just think about that. People are coming in just to buy solely bread and milk. Like, it's, it's insane. It's like, again, like the whole milk sandwich thing. Like, I, I'm legit. Like, I don't know if people want milk sandwiches or if, hey, there's going to be white stuff outside, so I have this hankering to drink and eat things that are white, so I want bread and milk. Like, I don't know, I don't know what it is, but it makes no sense to me. But it always does crack me up. Again, more than two inches of snow, people think that they're going to starve in 48 hours. But seeing as my family owns the store, I will cash in on that panic anytime. Like, so I love the fact that they come in. Uh, but that's neither here nor there. Um, I, I'm, I'm glad that we could all be here this evening. Um, we're going through the Gospel of Luke, and we've been there for a very long time, as some of you like to remind me every single week. Uh, we've been there like, for like five semesters, I do believe. And the name of this series, if you're new, is called Did Jesus Really Say That? And the idea is we're, gonna, we're going through and we're not looking so much at Jesus' actions, but we're looking more at what did he say? What did he teach? What are some of the parables um, that, he, that he spoke? Because a lot of the time Jesus just says things that our culture does not paint Jesus to say. He says very hard things, very challenging things. And he's not like the, the Birkenstock-wearing hippie that we like to think he is. Um, but, but tonight... Um, I'm, this is like an especially hard teaching of Jesus. At least it was for me. Um, it is very sobering teaching. Um, so forgive me if I'm not my usual jovial light self. Um, it's the parable of the ten minas or parable of the, of the pounds or whatever you may have heard. Um, it's, it's not exactly the most popular parable um, in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, but maybe you've heard of the parable of the talents. Anyone show hands? Uh, where Jesus gives three different, ser- or the, the man in the parable gives three different servants three different amounts of money and tells them to do work, and then he comes back and sees did they, what, the, what they profited. Um, and that's in the Gospel of Matthew. And this is a really, really similar par- parable. Um, but Jesus emphasizes a couple of things in this one that he doesn't really emphasize in Matthew at all. Um, but this teaching, this parable that we're going to look at, is, is very piercing. Um, it, it's, it's, it's very blunt and... And brutal, and I don't mean that in the sense that it's not good and that it's not gracious and it's not something that we need. But I mean, like, it—I don't know how many of you guys have this experience with the Bible, but like, it seems like every time I open it, like, I just get like punched in the stomach. Like, like on like, like the comforting passages, there are for certain, and, and the Bible as a whole is very comforting. But like, I just get beat up every time because like the Bible reveals to us what's wrong with us and it challenges us and shows us where we're failing, but then ultimately points us to this beautiful hope that we have in Jesus. Because for all that is wrong with me, there is infinitely more that is right with Him, and that is all ultimately our hope. So as much as I want you guys to be challenged, I, I want you guys to also take, take heart. Um, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, that it's, it's about him and what he's done for you and not what you have done for yourself because you can't save yourself. Only he can do that. Um, 
But again, this, this teaching is really piercing and to the point. Um, and what it deals with, what we're going to be dealing with this evening, uh, is the responsibilities that Jesus charges believers with. Um, and, and this fact that his return is imminent. Like he is going to come back someday as judge and king over all humanity. Um, and those who ignored the responsibilities that he charged them with are going to be judged in the same category as the ones who rejected him altogether. All right, so again, this, this, is, this is a heavy one. Right, so without any more, uh, we're going to pop into the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be in chapter 19, verses 11 through 27. It's going to be up here on the projector behind me. Uh, but if you're new here this evening, there are blue Bibles in the backs of those pews. Take it home. Take it home with you. It's, it's really easy translation. It's our gift to you, so take that with you. Uh, but let's go ahead and hop in it. Luke 19, 11 through 27. I'm just going to read the, the whole thing. The crowd was listening to everything Jesus said. And because he was nearing Jerusalem, he told them a story to correct the impression that the kingdom of God would begin right away. He said, A nobleman was called away to a distant empire to be crowned king and then return. Before he left, he called together ten of his servants and divided among them ten pounds of silver, saying, Invest this for me while I am gone. But his people hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, We do not want him to be our king. After he was crowned king, he returned and called in the servants to whom he had given the money. He wanted to find out what their profits were. The first servant reported, Master, I invested your money and made ten times the original amount. Well done, the king exclaimed. You are a good servant. You have been faithful with the little I entrusted to you, so you will be governor of ten cities as your reward. The next servant reported, Master, I invested your money and made five times the original amount. Well done, the king said. You will be governor over five cities. But the third servant brought back only the original amount of money and said, Master, I hid your money and kept it safe. I was afraid because you are a hard man to deal with, taking what isn't yours and harvesting crops you didn't plant. You wicked servant, the king roared. Your own words condemn you. If you knew that I'm a hard man who takes what isn't mine and harvests crops that I didn't plant, why didn't you deposit my money in the bank? At least I could have gotten some interest on it. Then, turning to the other standing nearby, the king ordered, Take the money from this servant and give it to the one who has ten pounds. But master, they said, he already has ten pounds. Yes, the king replied, And to those who use well what they are given, even more will be given. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. And as for these enemies of mine, who didn't want me to be their king, bring them in and execute them right here in front of me. Again, that's, that's not exactly, that last verse is not exactly a uh, quote you're going to see on a lot of these blog posts talking about Jesus, is it? <laughs> like, bring these dudes in here who rejected my authority and slaughter them. Uh, not exactly going to find that one on thinking of a couple of churches I'm not going to name. Uh, sorry, I digress. Um, so, what's a little bit of context for this? Um, a little bit of, little bit of background on, on this text so that we can understand why he spoke the way he did, why he told this parable. Um, Jesus and his disciples are headed to Jerusalem, right? For like the last uh, 10 or so chapters in the Gospel of Luke, they've been making their way to Jerusalem um, steadily. Um, And ultimately, we know Jesus is going to die there in Jerusalem. But uh, what's really good to know, Jerusalem is an incredibly important city. Um, In the Old Testament, it's referred to as God's city, or depending what uh, translation you read, uh, it's called His Holy Hill in some of the Psalms, which I always thought was kind of a funny way to see it translated, God's holy hill. 
So uh, Jerusalem is a super big deal for Jewish people. Uh, a Jewish thought uh, about Jerusalem was that the Messiah, right, God's chosen one, his anointed one, who's going to usher in this kingdom of peace and his, his rule would be never ending and he would rule the nations and everyone would bow at his feet, this Messiah, that he would rule from Jerusalem. Um, that's, that's Jewish thought, that he would establish his kingdom there. Um, and Jesus had been proclaiming this message, this good news, this gospel of the kingdom, right? He constantly says, especially in the gospel of Luke, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom is at hand. It's a concept through all four gospels. Um, but this idea of kingdom, um, it's, it's kind of a, it's a huge, huge deal. But it's kind of a complicated concept, but it's not too bad. So I want to talk about the kingdom for a second so you guys can get a good idea of this. Um, the kingdom, the kingdom of God, whenever Jesus refers to that, um, the majority of the time he's talking about God's rule and reign on earth, right? But not just on earth, um, but especially in the lives of his people, right? And, and this kingdom is, is one where, you know, sin is conquered and Satan is defeated and, and the enemies of God, the enemies of this Messiah are conquered, um, and I know that sounds like, okay, well, that's not exactly happened yet, and you're right. Um, you know, but in a very real way, at the same time, in a very real way, um, that was happening already and continues to happen today. Um, one of the ideas about the kingdom is that, it's, and it sounds funny, it's already and not yet. Right? That's one thing about the kingdom of God. It's already here, but it's not quite yet. Um, but these things, uh, again, like about... Um, about sin being conquered, right? In the lives of those who put their faith in Christ. The Bible says we're no longer slaves to sin. So the power of sin has been broken. So sin has been conquered. That Satan has been defeated. That, that he no longer binds us, right? He has no control over us whatsoever if we have our faith in Christ, right? Death has been overcome. Um, Jesus, through, through pulling us towards faith um, in him, right? Through the Holy Spirit, he, he's broken us from being at enmity with God to now being... Um, children of God, right? So in, in very real ways, the kingdom is here. Again, the power of sin and Satan have been bound, and we're no longer slaves to those things. Um, but those things happen already as a foretaste of what's to come, right? And when I say foretaste, what, what I mean is this. There is some point in the future where what theologians will call the kingdom will be consummated, right? The consummation of the kingdom. And what the consummation is, is Jesus' return. Right? Jesus says, I will be back. Right? He ascended into heaven, and he's coming back someday. And he says, I come back to judge, and I come back as king. No longer a suffering servant that's going to die for people's sin, but I come back as ruler of all, as, 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 as king of all things, and I come back to judge the world. And I come back to, to, to completely fulfill the kingdom that's already here and make it fully realized. Right? This is a, the consummated kingdom is a perfect world. Right? Complete restoration, complete absence of sin, no more rebellion against God, no more enemies of God, everything in subjection to Jesus as it was always supposed to be. Um, now, the reason why I said all that is the people who are listening to Jesus whenever he's, he's telling this parable, they're expecting the consummation of the kingdom now. Like they were expecting it to be like incredibly soon. They were expecting Jesus to roll into Jerusalem. Right? And assume political power there. Again, as king, they wanted this kind of warrior messiah. Because they were under like awful oppression by the Roman Empire. And they thought they wanted Jesus to come in, assume political power, run out the Romans, and establish the kingdom in Jerusalem. Right? They wanted him to come and reign there. And that's what they were expecting him to do. Um, but the problem with that is Jesus has constantly taught that it's not going to be that way. 
right? Not at first. Not his first time here. Right? He's constantly said that, that he must die in order to save. He must die first in order to establish this kingdom. And what's really funny, and this gives me a lot of hope whenever I read the Gospels, Jesus' 12 disciples that followed him around, the 12, they never understood that. Like, like legit, in the chapter before the one that we're in, it's uh, Luke 18, verses 31 through 34. Jesus explicitly tells them, I have to die at the hands of the Romans, but then I'm going to come back to life. And it's like, and the disciples didn't understand what he meant. And it's like, are you serious? How do you not understand what he meant? Which gives me a lot of hope, because if they were that dumb, I'm pretty dumb too, and Jesus still loved them. So like, good, right? This is good for all of us, because we're not all that smart. Um, but the 12, I just kind of insulted roughly 60 people in here. Welcome to revolution, whatever. Um, <laughs> but the 12 never really seemed to understand what Jesus meant. Um, and what's funny is Peter actually tries to reprimand Jesus. In, in Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 33, Jesus says, hey, I have to die first. And Peter takes Jesus off to the side like, dude, what are you talking about? Quit, quit talking that nonsense. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Right? You guys know that passage. I used to say it to my sister a lot growing up. Like, get, get thee hence, Satan, if you're King James. Get thee behind me. Um, but yeah, so he actually says, Peter, you're an adversary to the gospel right now. That's what Satan means is adversary. You're being an adversary to the gospel. I must die in order to establish this kingdom. How do you, how do you not get that yet? Um, now... Again, so they're thinking the kingdom's going to come. Jesus has explicitly said multiple times, it's not going to be that way. I'm not coming to be a political king to run out the Romans. All right? that, that's not what his, his, his agenda is. Um, but the fact that the disciples themselves thought that this is what Jesus was going to do in Jerusalem, that tells me this. Um, and feel, feel free to disagree with me, but th- this is the premise that I'm running on this evening. That tells me that the, the disciples had heard, but had not taken to heart... Jesus' calls to take up your cross and suffer. To take up your cross. If you want to follow me, you have to die to yourself daily. And be obedient to me. They had had heard, but they had not taken to heart Jesus' call to serve people. That if you want to be first in the kingdom, you must be last on earth and count yourself as lowly and nothing. And love the unlovable. They hadn't taken to heart His calls to prepare to suffer. That people are going to hate you because you love me. His calls to love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, bless those who curse you. They, they had not taken seriously His calls to go proclaim the gospel to people, to go proclaim this kingdom, this freedom from sin found in Jesus. They hadn't taken that seriously. And the reason why I say that is they couldn't have really truly believed that they would have to do these things if the kingdom of God was to come now. All right? Think about that. What, what kingdom is there to proclaim? Clearly, everyone's going to be able to see the kingdom. Jesus has assumed political power. What enemies will there be if the Messiah is going to come and crush all of God's enemies, right? Like, what persecution can there be whenever the Messiah assumes power and is ruling and reigning with all authority in the universe, right? They, they can't have really taken seriously his calls to do that. They thought everything was going to be easy street and they weren't really going to have to do anything. Now, that's at least where, that's where I'm running with this. Um, so what Jesus does... Is, is he tells them a parable to correct that kind of wrong thinking that they had. Right? So let's kind of rehash this parable and, and think about it. Jesus says right off the rip, a nobleman goes away to be crowned king. Right? Just fun fact, if you ever read in parables, anytime, or not anytime, generally speaking, whenever there's someone in authority or like a nobleman or a king, that's Jesus or God the Father almost every single time. So in this parable, the nobleman who's going out of his country to another distant land to be crowned king is Jesus. 
Um, and him going away, whenever I first read that, I thought, oh, like, he left heaven to come to earth to be crowned king. Actually, that's completely backwards, right? Jesus is going away. It's his death. Remember, he has to die in order to save. He has to die in order to establish this kingdom. So him going away is him dying, right? He must first suffer and die and suffer the wrath of God um, on behalf of sinners and then ascend to heaven in order to be crowned, right? So again, this kingdom is not going to be immediate because he's not done these things yet, right? And the reason why I say he has to die and suffer first to be um, given all this authority is Matthew twenty-eight eighteen. Jesus says, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth, right? This is after his resurrection, right? Um, Philippians 2, 6 through 11, Peter gives this beautiful um, hymn, actually, where he says, you know, Jesus, being in the form of God, did not count it um, something to be grasped, right? His equal standing with God the Father, but he poured himself out and became a servant, right? And was obedient to God, so obedient that he even died a death on the cross, right? And therefore, because of that, because he suffered all these things, he's been given a uh, name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father, right? This all happens because Jesus suffers first. So Jesus had to die in order to receive this authority. So this nobleman going out of country to be crowned is Jesus dying um, and, and being resurrected to receive his authority, right? So before leaving, though, Jesus says the nobleman charges the servants to do work. Right? He says he gives them, he gives them those, the, the bags of silver. Right? He gives them a pound of silver apiece. Um, that's Jesus giving responsibilities right, to his servants. And, and when I say servant, um, we're going to see a servant is someone who professes with their mouth, professes allegiance to Jesus. They, they may or may not truly be a servant. They may or may not truly um, be loyal to the king, but they profess it. And then he says the general population hates the king. Right, um, protests against him, sends a delegation after the king to tell the to tell um, to tell him that we don't want you to be king. Right, that's the rejection of the king is is the human population in general and how they're going to respond to Jesus's message. Right, but then he says the king returns, right, and calls servants calls his servants to give an account of how they handled their responsibilities. What did you do with this pound of silver that I gave each of you? Right? And, and based off of what they did, how faithful they were to their responsibility to do work, um, he gave huge rewards. Right? And when I say huge rewards, I know a pound of silver sounds like, man, that would be like a pretty good bit of money back then. Actually, um, the, the real word is mina. Uh, and that's like roughly three months worth of wages, but like, think like three months worth of like enough money to buy food so you don't die. Right, So like, it's not actually that large of an amount of money. So really, this guy that says, hey, I, I made you, you know, 10 pounds of silver back, um, that's, that's not a very huge sum of money. That'd be like three grand or so now. You know what I mean? Ten times the amount. It'd be like $3,000 or so. And he gives him 10 cities for it. Right? Think about that. Gives him 10 cities. Puts him ruler over 10 cities. Think about the money that would come with that. So like, again... Huge rewards for not much money. So, so the king is incredibly gracious towards those who are responsible. Um, but then there is a wicked servant. And he does nothing with the money. He, he's lazy. The king calls him lazy. Um, and he accuses the king of being a cold, hard, and cruel king. Remember, this, is, this nobleman represents Jesus. This king represents Jesus. And this wicked servant is wicked because he's accusing Jesus of being cold and cruel. Which is really proof positive that this servant does not know the king whatsoever. 
He doesn't know the king at all. all right, again, consider how generous and kind was the king to the other servants. How much did he reward them whenever they really didn't bring very much to him? How much did he reward them? How, how, how compassionate and generous towards them was he? How gracious was the king? And then the king takes everything from this wicked servant. And then the king says this in verse 26 again. He says, To those who use well what they are given, even more will be given. But from those, but from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. All right? This is, again, this idea of reward is given to those who are faithful. And the wicked, those who do nothing, will have even what they thought they had taken from them. I think that's, I think that's the, the general concept here. So the wicked have even what they thought were taken from them. And then the king has those who, reje- who rejected his kingship. He has them slaughtered at his feet. Um, and I would, I would lump the wicked servant in with that group. Because he says, those who did not want me to be king, those who would not accept my reign, those who would not accept my authority over them, come bring them to me and slaughter them. The wicked servant clearly didn't accept the king's reign at all. He merely professed allegiance to the king, but he cared nothing to do what the king told him to do. Right? So again, this, this wicked servant really didn't have any loyalty to the king. Now, uh, I don't have anything profound to say about that. I don't. I don't have anything new to say about this, this teaching. So I'm just going to give you the big idea, and I'm going I'm to pose a couple of questions to you guys, and I want you guys to really think on it and, and let it bother you and be honest with yourself and be very introspective. Okay, just shoot really straight with yourself because you're the only one who really knows you aside from the Lord. Um, but here's the big idea of this parable. Jesus has given responsibilities to those who profess to be his servants. He's charged us all with things that he wants us to do. Things he wants us to abstain from. And someday Jesus is going to return and call those ser- or who profess to be servants, call them to a given account. And the unfaithful false servants will be judged. And they'll be judged together with those who outright rejected Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And even what they thought that they had, which would be salvation, these false followers of Christ, even what they thought they have is going to be taken from them. That's the big idea behind this. Right? So I think the big question that that poses to us is this. Are you a faithful servant? Are you a faithful servant of Jesus Christ? Or, like the disciples did, not hearing but not taking to heart the things Jesus said, do you expect to not have to live in step with Jesus' teaching? Are are you faithful to the responsibilities that Jesus gives to all believers, or are you a liar? That's, that's, that's That's the long and short of this. I think that's the question that this text, we must answer. If we're going to really take seriously what Jesus said here. Now, again, before we go any further, nobody is perfect on this. Right? Anyone in here who says, yes, I'm a completely like, great, faithful follower of Jesus Christ. You don't read your Bible enough, right? Like, <laughs> if we're going to be totally honest here, like, you're not taking very seriously Jesus. Jesus says like, the things you think that aren't right, like, they're sin. Right? Like, the things that you think that you ought not think, that that is sin. To know what you ought to do and not do it is sin. It's called a sin of omission, right? You, you didn't do what you should have done. It's just as bad as a sin of actually actively doing something wrong, right? So none of us are completely faithful followers 100% of the time. But what I'm asking is, are you striving to be faithful? Is there struggle in your life with sin? Are you pushing 
to be more faithful to His commands, to love people, to love your enemies, to show kindness, to serve others, to be generous with the, with the, with the resources God's given you. Right? Is there struggle? Are you striving? Now, I, I know this because if any of you are like me, especially those of you uh, that would identify yourself as Reformed, um, our knee-jerk reaction to this parable is, is this. Because this was mine when I read it and I really started thinking about it. Hold on, Dave. I thought we were saved by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone, right? I thought we were saved about, uh, or by Jesus Christ's perfect life and His perfect work and not our own works, right? I agree. Just wanted to get that out there so you guys don't shut me out, right? I agree completely. That is the gospel message. You cannot save yourself. No amount of good works, right? No amount of obedience is going to save you. Only faith in Christ saves. Only Jesus lived a perfect life. Only Jesus could suffer the penalty for our sins and still come back from the dead. Only Jesus can save us. Not being a good moral person, not making a list of all the things Jesus commands us to do and then executing them, right? That's not what saves. Trusting Jesus Christ's perfect life in your place, trusting His atoning death in your place is the only thing that will save. That is the gospel. Don't get me twisted on that. That being said, we cannot disregard Jesus' words here. You can't. That's what we do. Really, that is what we do. We see, man, Jesus says like He wants us to like work and be faithful and be obedient to Him. But Paul says we're saved by faith alone. I'm going to let Paul trump Jesus here. And you're trying to pit God's Word against itself? Like the Holy Spirit would... Inspire Paul to say something that contradicts God the Son? Like you're pitting two members of the Trinity at odds with one another, and that makes no sense. Right? So we cannot disregard Jesus' words here. Right? In, this, in this parable, this isn't the only time Jesus says stuff like this. Right? Um, in, in multiple Gospels, Jesus and John the Baptist both actually say, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Right? It's, it's this idea Jesus says, like, a, a thorn bush can't produce figs, and a fig tree can't produce thorns. Right? It doesn't work that way. It says a tree will be known by the fruit that it bears. Right? Our obedience, the things that we do, like it, that's what's going to make us known as whether or not we truly follow Jesus. Right? So we can't ignore Jesus saying about you know, uh, bear fruit. We can't ignore Jesus' teaching here. We definitely can't ignore James' teaching that faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. And what that means is faith without works is a false faith. Faith without a life that backs up what you profess to believe is a lie. If you have absolute zero obedience to Christ, absolute zero care, right? Like, you don't even have a desire to follow Jesus and be obedient to His commands. Your faith is a lie. You may say whatever you want with your mouth, but your actions prove that you're not telling the truth. Right? That's why James says, you tell me, like, you show me your faith by what you say, and I'll show you my faith by what I do. James actually says, you believe in one God. That's great. Even the devil believes in that. Even the demons believe that. And they tremble at the thought. We don't even tremble most of the time. Right? So again, we can say whatever we want, but faith without a life that backs it up is a lie. And I say that because this, I'm convinced of this fact. If our faith in Jesus Christ is real, then it is alive. It's a living faith. Right? Peter tells us we've been born again to a living hope. Right? This is alive. It changes us. It transforms us. All right? And Martin Luther, I, I give you guys this quote all the time. Martin Luther said, We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. It's always backed up by a life of following Christ, of striving for obedience, of struggling to fight sin, of, of pushing ourselves to be more obedient to Christ's commands. 
So if our faith is real and it's alive, or our faith has no works and it's dead, I think the real question is, do you really believe? And I'm not just pointing the finger at you. I had to point the finger at me for like seven days on this passage. So like this isn't me being a jerk to anyone in here. I'm just posing a hard question. Do you really believe? Do you really have true saving faith in Jesus Christ? Now, I know that, again, there might be some people in here who, who are possibly in their minds being resistant to what I'm saying, right? That, that, that I know, like, again, this is me usually whenever I hear people preaching this kind of stuff. How dare you, right? This is my thought. How dare you make me doubt my salvation? You're being a legalist. You're being a Pharisee to make me question whether or not I actually follow Christ. Uh, but what's funny about that is the Apostle Peter, um, one of Jesus' 12 innermost followers, he actually tells us that we should be asking ourselves this question. He tells us that we should be very introspective about our lives ourselves. Right? Second Peter 1.10, he says this. He gives a list of all these things that he wants us to be doing. All right? And he says, So dear brothers and sisters, work hard to prove that you really are among those God has called and chosen. Do these things and you will never fall away. All right? Peter actually says, work hard. Right? ESV version says, you know, like, make your calling and election sure. Right? He's saying, ask yourself the, like, these hard questions. Right? Obey Christ. So again, I- I'll ask again, what do you believe? Do you really believe? And when, when I say that, like, I, I want to I pose a few questions. Do you really believe that you're a sinner? Do you really believe... That on a daily basis, you spit in the face of God with your disobedience to Him, myself included. Do you really believe that you're a sinner? That God's given us a standard, a a code to live by, and we've said, absolutely not. I will live the way that I choose. You will not rule over me. I reject your authority. I will be the authority in my life. That's what sin boils down to, is I will not obey because I am going to be God over my life. Do you really believe that you do that? Because you do. We all do. Do you really believe that you're a sinner? Part two to that, do you really believe that you deserve to go to hell? There is none righteous, not one, is what the Bible tells us. Do you really believe that you deserve to go to hell? That you deserve to burn for eternity and suffer God's wrath for all time for your rebellion against Him? Because you're a sinner. Because you've spit in his face with your disobedience. Do you really believe that you deserve to go to hell? Everyone does. Has that truth hit you in the heart? That you're a wretch, you're wicked, and this is the righteous punishment for wickedness. And then if you're a Christian, do you really believe that in spite of those two facts, in spite of as as, as awful as we are, That we would reject this king with how we live our lives. That in spite of our own awfulness and what we deserve, that Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for your sin and has been raised to life so that you can live. Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that you've been granted amnesty, complete immunity from punishment from the king that you've rebelled against? Do you really believe that? That through Jesus Christ, you will not get what you deserve. Has that truth affected your heart? 
Because if you really believe that, that Jesus has shown you this kind of grace, and that the King of kings would love us and pursue us in such a way, if we really believe that, then our lives will be forever transformed. Our desires will be transformed. We will want Jesus. We will want to strive to be like Him. We will want to be obedient. We will want to be followers of Him. If we really believe those three things, that I'm a sinner, I deserve God's wrath, but Jesus has absorbed it for me because He loves me. Our lives will be changed if we really believe those things. All right, this, is, this is a big thing at Revolution. As we always say, gratitude is the motive for obedience. Gratitude, always. The gospel should make us grateful. Right? If we believe that we have been saved by God's pure goodwill and love for us that we did not deserve, that's what grace means, is you get what you don't deserve. If we really believe that we've been loved by the grace of God, then there should be just a wellspring of gratitude towards Him that we cannot fathom. That's just bottomless. Right? And Jesus says this, if you love me, obey my commands. He says that in John 14, 15. If you love me, obey me. If you love me, you will obey me, is another translation. Or if you love me, you should obey me. These are all translations of that verse. So if we really believe the gospel, this good news that we deserve hell because we're sinners, but this good news that Jesus has suffered it for us and has been raised to life so that we would live... How could we not want to be faithful to the responsibilities that He's charged us with? How could we not? You know, and and I was really glad that that this parable came up. Again, God's Word is so sufficient and and speaks on so many different levels to us. Um, I was was glad to do this because this parable is, is so incredibly necessary for our faith. It really is. And furthermore, like it, it, is, it is so ridiculously relevant for us today. Right? And I say that because there are so many people, and it's always been this way. right? Legitimately, it's always been this way, whether you want to talk about Puritans or whatever time period in history we have with Christianity. But especially now, I feel like there are so many people who profess to have faith in Jesus Christ, who go to church, maybe like able to explain the gospel, maybe very good with theology, maybe able to quote entire books of the Bible, but are completely unfaithful to any of the responsibilities that Jesus gives. Think about that. We live, we live in America, obviously. 70%, 70% of the population claims to be Christians. Did you know that? 70%, 7 out of 10 people in the United States say that they follow Jesus Christ. No way. No way is that true. Right? Like it's ludicrous to even think that that's even remotely true. We live in a culture that says being a Christian is, is again, like the American pastime of like playing baseball, right? Like you're an American, you like baseball, you like apple pie, and you're a Christian, right? Like that's pretty much the culture that we live in. That's why 70% of people say that they're Christians and they're really not the majority of them. But we live in a culture where people will profess and they care nothing about Jesus Christ's commands or the responsibilities that He's given us. Right? These kinds of people may talk a good game, but, but they, generally speaking, they, they care nothing about studying Scripture, about praying and being in communication with God, about confessing their sin to other people. That's something we're commanded in the Bible to do is go to other people and tell them what's going on in our lives. It's not okay. They don't care anything about repentance, right? changing their mind about their sin, turning from their sin and turning towards Christ. They don't care about accountability. Right? Having other believers hold their feet to the fire so that they would walk in closer obedience and walk in step with the Spirit. They don't care anything about loving their enemies. How many, I mean, let's really think about it. How many politicians have we seen claiming to be Christians that absolutely show no love towards enemies? 
And yet, that'll fly here in the United States. Right? There are so many people that claim to be Christians that, that don't care about serving other people, that don't care a thing about the poor, that don't care about forgiving people, don't care about fighting sin. Or, and this is the one that bothers me the most, people claim to be Christians and they care nothing about proclaiming the gospel and telling people to repent and flee God's wrath and trust in Jesus for their salvation. Care nothing about proclaiming that message. They say they're Christians, care nothing about the fact that a lot of the people that they're around are going to go to hell. It's probably because they themselves are going to go to hell. And they just have made themselves feel comfortable and believe that they're Christians. Just throwing this one out there off the cuff. There's a quote from Charles Spurgeon that says, If you don't care about the salvation of your neighbor, be sure you don't have your own. Meaning, if you don't care to see other people saved, if you don't care to share the gospel with people, be sure that you are not a Christian and that you are going to go to hell yourself. Again, not because what we do saves us, but because true faith is alive, it's living, and it follows Christ. Now, I I don't intimately know all you guys. Um, I, I don't. I want to. Um, again, please get a hold of me. I'd like to hang out with you on Mondays and Tuesdays or any other day. But I don't know you guys, all of you intimately. Um, and the ones that I do know pretty intimately, I don't know anyone's heart. I really don't. All I know is what, what I'm told. And furthermore, that, that being said, I'm not the judge of you anyway. I'm really not. And I'm not taking like, don't judge, like out of context in the Bible because people do that crap all the time. But like, I'm not the judge of any of you. Um, but again... Are you striving to be faithful to Jesus? Jesus is judge and he knows your heart better than you do. Are you striving to be faithful to Christ? Is there any evidence, right, that you love Jesus? Is there any evidence in your life whatsoever? Again, and I don't want to discourage anyone here if if you're struggling, right? Growth may be small, but is there any growth? Growth might be small. Like whenever I first became a Christian and and I was watching porn uh, for like 30 hours a week or so. Like from week to week, I remember I was meeting with my pastor and I was like, it's it's not getting any better, man. Like, am I a Christian? Like, I'm not. And he would say after a couple of months of meeting with him and talking about this and fighting this sin and trying to be obedient to Jesus, I was was having this conversation saying, dude, it's not getting better. He says, how often do do you watch it now? I said, probably three times a week. He said, and you used to watch it 30 hours a week? There's, there's growth there, man. Right? And it got less and less and less and less. What, I, what I'm getting at with that is just a personal example. Growth might be small, and it may take a long time, but is there any growth? Is there any growth? So if, if there is small growth, I don't want to discourage you. I'm not saying perfection is what we're going to ever have. That's not the case. I actually want to encourage you to keep fighting if you are fighting. Whatever the sin might be. Keep fighting. But again, I, I say these things because I see so many people in our area, because we have a lot of churches around here, who, who claim to be a servant of Jesus, but don't care about Him. And I don't want that to be you. I don't want that to be me, if we're going to be totally honest. I've had to do a lot of soul searching myself this past week, studying for this. What I'm getting at is, I don't want any of us to be deceived. Because there are so many people who are deceived and lulled into thinking that everything is okay. One of the Old Testament prophets said there are people going around saying, peace, peace, and there is no peace. I don't want you to be deceived. But if you're here and you're, and you're realizing that you have been a false servant, if you're here and you're realizing through what Jesus taught here and other places in the Bible that we've looked at, that you're not really a Christian, if that's you, or 
maybe you're here and you really are a true believer, but you found that your love for Christ has grown cold. Right, which th- This has been me often. Your love for Christ just grows cold. There is a remedy for that. There is a remedy for that. And I don't have seven steps to make you a better you or anything like that. There's one thing. There's only one thing that's going to change our heart. Only, there's only one thing that's going to remedy this for us. And that's to reflect on the gospel. To reflect on the gospel. Right? These truths will push you. And here are the truths that I'm talking about. That you are worse of a sinner and more deserving of God's hatred and more deserving of God's wrath than you could possibly imagine. But you have been shown more love by Jesus on the cross than you will ever comprehend. Think about that. Think about the love of God found in Christ crucified for you. Reflect on that. King Jesus loves you so dearly that He gave His life for you. That's good news. That will change us. Who are we that the King of Kings would come and serve us? Who am I that He would love me? That life Himself would die for us? Who are we? That thought that He does love you and He did do that is what will stoke the fire in our hearts and push us to be faithful. That and that alone. Nothing else will change us. So I'll say this, on behalf of of Jesus and the warning that He's given us, I want to implore you, if you're a Christian, be diligent. Do work. Don't be lazy. Don't be complacent. The warning Jesus gives us here is too strong. Jesus' judgment is too serious and His return is imminent. Or your death is imminent if if you die before He returns. You will stand before Him and will give account. The warning is too serious. If you're not a Christian, trust Jesus Christ. Believe that He suffered in your place for your salvation. And then be faithful to Him. But for as tough as a teaching that this is that Jesus gave us, I, I, I don't want you to ever forget this. L- listen to me. This is hard. This has been a hard sermon to preach. It's been convicting for me as I'm standing here along with this week as I was preparing Know this, Jesus is not a harsh master. Remember the, the guy said, you're a cold, cruel king who takes what you didn't plant, right? He, he takes what you didn't deserve. You were too hard and I was afraid of you. No, that's not the king. Again, the man didn't know the king. Jesus is not a cruel, cold, harsh king. That's not him. I want you to know this. If you're a Christian, when you fail, where we fail to be faithful to Jesus, Jesus gives us unending grace that is never ceasing and will never run out. Jesus' grace is like a forest fire for us, and our failure is like a thimble full of water dumping it on there. We cannot extinguish His love for us ever. No matter how much we fail Him, Jesus is always going to be there to pick us up and remind us that He loved us enough to die for us and then to push us on to more faithfulness to Him. And then whenever you fail next time, because you will fail next time, He'll be there to do it again. To pick you up and say, you're my child and I love you. Push on. Persevere. Know this. He loves you. 
I want to encourage you guys with these words of Jesus in John 14, 21. He says, those who accept my commandments and obey them are the ones who love me. And because they love me, my Father will love them. And I will love them and reveal myself to each of them. Love gives way to more love. Love gives way to more love. Never forget that. If you love Christ, you will obey. Because He has loved you first. There's the old children's hymn that just has a ton of truth to it. Oh, how I love Jesus because He first loved me. That's the truth. That's why we obey.